Hi there, and great to have you along with me, Cleon and Ianlon, for another podcast edition of Spoken Stories Independence. Each time, a new story from a commissioned collection of short fiction is read by its author or by a guest reader, with you, the listener, in mind. Each invited writer started out by thinking what independence conjures up for them and where it might take them today, a hundred years after Ireland's War of Independence. Here now is writer Neil Jordan with a couple of words about his story called Easter 2036. It's interesting that there are strains of Gothic in Irish literature, of horror and fantasy and satire, but very little science fiction, dystopian or otherwise. So the idea of independence sent me to thinking about what Easter 2036 might look like, emerging from the long shadow of the current lockdown. And all sorts of strange other ideas came with it. Neil Jordan. Now, Easter 2036, read by Stephen Ray. The Hog. Maybe it had been so long outlawed that it would inevitably become a thing of the past. Remember we used to do that? The kiss, ditto on both cheeks in the French way or on the lips in the way of the old patriarchy. The elbow bump made the handshake a forgotten habit. And the strange thing was that once the vaccine became acceptable, these old relics still didn't make the reappearance. Had something essential changed? That was the question the team in the graduate program in the Confucius Institute began to ponder. They amassed statistics, charts, information flows, interrelated fractal graphs, and fed them through whatever computational sources were available, about the under-50s in particular. While unable to visit their elders, it was discovered they still cared. But the caring itself eventually became a care, a bother, an affliction, an emotional burden which itself needed its own treatment. Parents dying on ventilators behind plastic shrouds, reachable only by phone or pixelated image, had already been burden enough. But as the vaccinated elders made their way back into the community, it became increasingly clear that a habit had died. Not only the habit of the hug, the how are you, the handshake, the kiss hello, but something much more fundamental. The experience in its totality had given rise to a generation that couldn't bear to care, couldn't bear to in the broader scheme of things, love. And not only in the filial sense, although that was how the absence first manifested itself, in the broader erotic sense too, as a new generation emerged into the formerly empty streets, they found that too alarmingly easy to forget. What had been something of a battleground before the viral event with competing versions of desire and eros fighting for their spaces, their authenticities, their voices, was now a blasted landscape. 
so they found it easier to retreat once more. They were called Hikikomori in Japan, a generation who preferred isolation to human contact. And maybe this isolation had its benefits. Online, after all, had claimed the safest space for erotic engagements. Sex was sex, whether with oneself or some ersatz other, however they announced themselves or claimed to be. But still, the thread and the tropes from Plato to the present day, could it possibly just end like that? Like the spurt of a solitary orgasm, the whimper of a very little death? Whatever had happened would happen to the embrace, the idea of it, whatever about the actuality. And the question went far beyond the pleasure principle, the worry being that no generation at all would follow the lost one. And it was a lowly graduate student who came up with the insight that had eluded all of the massed firepower of AI. An experience, an exuberance, an irrationality that used to be common to all of us had already, in the past, acted like a viral infection. An infection that had once threaded itself through the popular songs, the television serials, the movies, the novels. Jane was her name. She was thin, too shy to be as tall as she was, which probably accounted for the sloped shoulders. Her hair was brown and never could quite manage itself. She'd been in love once some years ago and remembered the feeling. Coming from nowhere as it did, it had indeed felt like a wave of something. Nausea, eventually. But in the beginning, an irrational explosion as if oxygen had suddenly been administered to her bloodstream. The love object in this case was Maura Collie who had one day, to the delight of her schoolmates and the horror of the nuns, shortened the disgusting green skirt that had been a feature of the uniform since probably the 60s, to reveal the curve of a perfect pair of knees under the lacy tangles of a pair of filigree black stockings. The vision so confused Jane that, at first, she thought what she was feeling was envy for the sheer capriciousness of the gesture and the lack of visible bone in those knees. But after a woozy walk home through the park, where Maura Collie passed her on a motorbike which flared the skirt backwards, she felt her stomach fall with the realisation that it wasn't envy after all. It was an emotion from quite another source, complicated by the fact that Maura was riding pillion her arms wrapped around the leather-clad waist of Joey Conroy from St. Finian's across the park. So several years, a BA in genetics and a virus later, Jane could think of the experience more objectively, examine it as the phenomenon it surely was, and was gradually drawn to one startling conclusion. If love was a kind of sickness and there was an abundance of literature to attest to that thesis. It behaved like a viral one, brought on by the presence of another, enhanced by their proximity, only cured by the passage of time. But, and here was the leap of intuition that Lou, the computer, could never make, no matter how enhanced by its quantum capabilities, 
what behaved so much like a virus could well become a virus, could be reproduced in an artificial state, could be refined, its internal structure manipulated the way other cellular systems were manipulated. Antidotes developed, vaccines circulated. All of the weapons of biological determinism put into play and love, refined and improved, lab-sealed, could then exist in its viral state. She sampled, spliced, and coded on her own at first, but the possibilities could only be kept hidden for so long. To an economic landscape depleted by the COVID pandemic, the release of something like this and its attendant commercial possibilities would be what previous generations would have called a godsend. It was sweet to supervise the first experimental doses and watch them work their magic. Mice, rats and hamsters were not known for their monogamous habits, nor were rhesus monkeys known for their romantic attachments. Yet there they were, Darby, the male, and Joan, the female, refusing all other simian contact and picking nits from exclusively each other's fur. Given the nature of non-viral romance and its transmission processes, i.e. from A to B and when that unit sunders from A to C and from B to D, all of which can be represented geometrically by what Jane defined as the great romantic algorithm, A to B, A to C, B to D, A to E, B to F, C to G, to H. Logic dictates that the refined romantic virus would begin the process of transmission with one unit, one couple of non-specific gender, one Ur-Eve and Ur-Adam, so to speak. So it was with mice, hamsters, rhesus monkeys and Vietnamese pot-bellied pigs. So it would begin, at least, with humans. The campus, fortunately, was outside the city boundaries, so it was a simple matter to isolate two dormitories, fill them with volunteers of varying sexual preference, choose the first couple, and observe the spread. And it was sweeter still for Jane to observe them walking by the Dodder River, arm in arm, in love, and then out of it, both partners stung then by the invisible wasp of jealousy, choosing others, hence the inevitable exponential spread. What was the exponential thought experiment she remembered for her first year? A lake with one lily blooming. On the second day, there are two. On the third day, four. On the fourth day, eight. On day 34, the lake is half full. How many days till it is full? One, she remembered writing with mathematical exactitude. The lilies double daily, and so the lake is full on day 35. Love, she was to find, went through a more haphazard development. The initial irrational explosion could last days, weeks, or months. In some perplexing cases, it promised to last forever. The more normal arc was that of an inverted bell curve, a bimodal distribution that fell to a trough between two peaks, the troughs and the peaks mirroring each other, 
the height of the first matching the depth of the second. And when all of the data was assembled, there was a certain reassurance in the reflection that life and statistical analysis were both mathematical in their essentials. The first problems arose when Jane presented her findings. She would have been happy with publication in one of the many scientific journals, but she had opened what one of the elders termed a Pandora's box. And here, Jane had to wonder about metaphor, how it insisted on penetrating every aspect of her practice, her research, but most of all her presentation of the same. And the box in question had such infinite possibilities that it would inevitably, at some point in the future, be monetized. Its monetization would secure the Institute into the foreseeable future. Jane knew how to splice, code, and sample, but nothing about sales. She felt a pang of ennui when the parade of marketing consultants began through the Institute's halls. What could they know of her beloved algorithm, or indeed of romance? They knew the tastes of the young, it seemed, and her ennui threatened to turn into bile when she became aware of the general assumption that she, Jane, no longer shared them. So, however sceptical she was of the various feasibility studies and branding templates, she had to swallow her pride and follow their chosen course of action. Jane had never heard of the Irish girl band and their rather ludicrous name, Kazoo. She suspected at times that they were the creation of the youngest and brashest of the marketing consultants. She remembered Billie Eilish and the mordant musical tastes of her own youth and wondered what her younger, tattooed self would have thought of their first single, Where Have I Met You Before? She knew the intent a reintroduction of all the mores and presumptions of teenage romance, as if the intervening viral wasteland had never happened. But it was setting the stage for... what? Jane, and indeed the board of the Institute, could not be sure. But to their surprise and indeed delight, the single went viral within minutes of its first appearance on Spotify. So their sophomore single, It Could Only Be You, went through to the stratosphere. And at this, Jane had to swallow her pride and what was left of her musical taste. A new dating site, Blush, rang in and out with their musical motifs. There was ample material now to be examined, interpreted and reinterpreted, blogs and Twitter responses, endless garage imitations of the original girl band, and a fertile cultural swamp that might support the release of the virus, which had yet to be named. And here Jane finally put her foot down. There was pressure from the board, the marketing consultants, and even the members of Kazoo to call it the love bug. Jane was adamant and stuck to her guns. The refined romance virus it was and would continue to be. The name, after all, was only of academic importance. Far more important would be the results. What harm could be done after all? No coughs, sneezes, pulmonary consequences. A sense of romantic obsession, refined in its purity, its intensity, 
free of all the quotidian accidents that had hindered it in the admittedly well-documented past, could only be an improvement. And here, Jane, who wanted to get ahead of the metaphorical posse, had a whole alphabet of reference, such an abundance indeed, that she had to call a halt after the seas. Catullus, the carpenters, the cure. The refined viral experience was ready for release, but as with any airborne pathogen, they had to find its very own unique transmission medium. The various members of Kazoo were given their own reality shows, their own brand labels, complete with cosmetic products, the most important of which was perfume. What better way to spread an intoxication of the senses than through scent itself? The members of Kazoo already had appropriately suggestive names. Melanie, Cupid, Rose, Apple, Mermaid. This long after the days of the Kardashians and when memories of the original Spice Girls had become something like the memory of snow in winter. Their cosmetic brands differed and competition between them was fiercer than anticipated. And when Cupid Kazoo's name became linked with Gar French the Younger, whose political career was already in the ascendant, it was inevitable which of the brands would win the cosmetic wars. Cupid's cosmetics were literally everywhere, and when Gar French gained the nomination of the Libertarian Party, ownership of the Cupid cosmetic pack became well-nigh compulsory. Self-medication would have been unethical, out of the question, which was not to say Jane wasn't tempted. A small nozzle, ingeniously shaped to resemble a bow, when pressed with a manicured finger, released a perfume that was orchid-scented with hints of frangipani. She had overseen the design herself, and it was probably inevitable that she would succumb the way Eve did with the first apple. She pressed the small plastic cap in front of her bathroom mirror and watched as the droplets spread into a diaphanous triangle. And bit by bit, the refined romantic virus overwhelmed the other bathroom scents. She saw the long walk from school again through the evergreen trees. She heard the throb of the motorbike behind her. She felt herself turn again and saw Maura Collie, one cheek pressed to the leather back of Joey Conroy's jacket, while the skirt flared above the filigreed perfect knees. She somehow resisted the urge to track her down online. She contented herself with the kind of undifferentiated love that mystics talk about and her bathroom seemed the most perfect place to be. What could go wrong? All of the pleasures of romantic obsession without their downsides. Rejection, obsession, possession, self-harm, mutilation, bondage, S and M. And as the refined romantic virus spread amongst a willing public, there was everything to celebrate in what some pundits called the death of the incel. What could go wrong? The first sign of trouble began with the weather. Not the weather itself, which continued on its dismal delivery of high and low troughs across the Atlantic, 
but with those who announced it. The trickle of mail into their post boxes became a torrent. Declarations of undying love, requests for emails, phone numbers, suggestive texts, and it soon became evident that something other than interest in the next storm system from the Azores was driving it. Sex, male or female, had nothing to do with it. Neither did physical beauty. Anyone who stood before a map of that small island, perched at the edge of that vast ocean, was becoming unaccountably an object of fevered romantic obsession and desire. The kinds of obsessional devotion that movie stars had to negotiate were visited upon them, and they had no defences against it. Jane had to wade through all of the data and once more came to a rather frightening but perfectly rational conclusion. It wasn't the weatherman or the weather woman that triggered these desires. It was the screen behind them, that perfect chroma key green over which the next front of low or high pressure was superimposed was the key, and the virus had mutated. Or other Janes had been at work. The mutations multiplied, at first only available on the dark web, then gradually everywhere. The genetic structure was spliced and decoded, and the mutations began to spread, at first in the same sense of innocent fun. Postmen developed romantic obsessions with postboxes. Foot fetishists had a field day and no window display was safe from their viral enthusiasms. Policemen fell in love with their bicycles. The term dog lover acquired new and sinister implications. Animal rights activists set up alternative communities. The deer population of the Phoenix Park huddled behind purpose-built fencing. Tree huggers began to sprout leaves. All this before the first sightings of the loup-garou. The Institute was thrown into a frenzy, of course, a frenzy of containment this time. A vaccine was ready but proved helpless in the face of all of the iconography and tropes that the virus had released. The endless narratives and metaphors, those dreary sagas of romantic love from Tiamatogos Grania through to Abelard and Eloise, Romeo and Juliet, Cathy and Heathcliff, Sid and Nancy, Kurt and Courtney, Cupid and Gar. Ovid, not Covid, provided Jane with the only possible guide to the new reality. Swans, stags, trees, reflective pools and mountain echoes, gathering erotic status. Interspecies communities awaiting their moment. Centaurs demanding the same rights as minotaurs. Around the same time, the first commercial time travel options were being explored. Requisitioned 787s made it possible, retrofitted by the SpaceX Corporation. The super-rich began to make the journey towards an uninfected future and liked what they found. Many didn't return. Those that did came back for nannies, butlers, essential household help, children from long-abandoned marriages to encounter an even worse version of the present they had left. 
The attractions of the trip were obvious, but who could afford it? That only the super-rich could enjoy an uninfected future became the cause of much public commentary and disquiet. The board of the STEM Institute chartered their own 787, oblivious to the howls of outrage on the airwaves. Until the CEO of the dying husk of Ryanair explored the options of one-way travel. Costs dropped precipitously with the elimination of the grandfather paradox and time travel inevitably became an option for all. Boeing and Airbus behemoths that had sat on unweeded airstrips since the COVID days were put to use with the added advantage that once airborne, they could never return. Jane bought her ticket on Easter Friday from what once had been the Joe Walsh Agency on O'Connell Street. She could see a logic now to all of these bewildering developments. There were small crops of grass and weed already springing between the concrete cracks. She imagined a wave of fern spreading from Drumcondra to Hoth, Ballymun buried under a canopy of forest. The present was reverting to the past to guarantee, in some strange way, the future. A werewolf howled outside the mossy pillars of the GPO. The bus to the airport was empty, but for her and a dry-robe-clad female whose scaled feet left briny prints on the metal floor. In the airport, the sound system was playing sleigh ride by the Ronettes from long, long ago. She had always loved the way Ronnie Spector sang, just behind the beat. Then she realised it wasn't Christmas. Maybe there were just no Easter songs. Or maybe time was wrapping around itself already. She wondered would the Ryanair seats be the same bilious yellow. She determined to make more notes to shorten the journey. But she had no idea how long it would take. Stephen Ray reading the story Easter 2036 by Neil Jordan, specially written for Spoken Stories Independence. Next time, Marty Ray reads St Albans Drive by Danielle McLaughlin. Enjoy all the commissioned fiction featured on Spoken Stories Independence wherever you get your podcast and on the RTE Spoken Stories website. From me, Cleon and Ianlun, thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>